show hasn't even started and you people are already off to a fucking roaring start. Casey Williams says, really looking forward to Bertrand's light-skinned insights. Goddamn. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And then laugh tracks for people that say, hate the laugh track. They love commenting about hating the laugh track. <laughs> it's not like I'm ever going to stop. Greetings, I'm your host, Jason Miles, and welcome to another episode of This is Revolution Podcast. For all the returning listeners and subscribers, thank you so much for coming back. For those new to the channel, thank you for taking a moment to check us out. If you dig what we're doing, please, on your way out, hit like, hit subscribe. Those passive gestures go a very long way into making sure we show up in the algorithm. And we can continue to do what we do here on TIR. Before bringing in our guest today, we had a great show last night with Amber A. Lee Frost, Ben and I. We got to talking. And Valentine's Day is coming up. Holiday for lovers, allegedly. And last year, when Ben was living here in uh, Mexico... We did a, <laughs> I think we called it Divorce Dudes, Kami, Valentine's at the Rainbow. And we were talking about doing something again, excuse me, and where it was going to be. And we decided, dude, uh, I was like, let's just do it at the Rainbow. That was so much fun. Let's do it again. So, um, where's it at? Where's it at? Where's it at? Oh, here it is. Bam! A single Kami Valentine's Day get-together at the Rainbow in Los Angeles in West Hollywood. Our guest was here for that. We had a good time at the Rainbow. I think that was his first time at the Rainbow. I learned my lesson. I'll be taking an Uber. I think I'm just going to park at Bird's house and take an Uber from there. Maybe we Uber all together. And fuck paying for parking. But... I look forward to doing this again. I hope the same people come through. Maybe we get some more people coming through. Who knows? But American fiction, is it truly fiction? The movie American Fiction is delighting audiences with its take on the essentializing of race that exists in the black culture industry. The movie taken from the work of black author Percival Everett is a great work of class, comedy, and race. But does the movie do the same thing? Our guest today, New York Times and Atlantic columnist Burt Cooper, has a bone to pick with this movie. We're coming for you, nigga! Already. Already. I also want to add that today is the first day of Negro History Month. Usually, when I first started this show, I had all these grandiose plans for Black History Month. And that is when I realized that Black people get paid to speak during February, and those niggas ain't working for free. <laughs> so nobody would come on my show. So it became a joke that in February, we just, we'd go out of our way not to have Black people. And then one year... I was like, no, we got to try. Oh, no, no, where it was. 
So we're starting off February 1st. But is the movie doing the exact disservice it's claiming white Hollywood does to black people attempting to make great art? Is this really about race? A few years ago, we did a show about the JT Leroy scandal, one that people are still silent about some 20 years later. If you didn't know, that was when a woman, Laura Albert, created a pen name and identity posing as a teenage gay boy who was pimped out by his mother in truck stops. The books went on to sell quite a few copies. And eventually, Albert enlisted her sister-in-law to be her avatar and fool Hollywood into thinking it was all real. Do we take a sick pleasure in watching marginalized, marginalized people live lives of persecution for enjoyment? The grittier, the more authentic, the more authentic, the more award-winning you're deemed to the taste-making masses. But is that really what makes money and moves in Hollywood? Black Panther was a box office monster for Marvel. And that film is about a land of make-believe black excellence. So how true is the narrative in American fiction? We will ask that question with our guests. Please give a warm, this is Revolution Welcome for New York Times and Atlantic and Current Affairs columnists. See, I even added Current Affairs on there, Bert, for your lefty grid. My play brother, Bertram Cooper. <laughs> Yeah, you just got to deal with it, brother. Your your family. Just, just. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, you know, getting to be here on day one of Black History Month. What a privilege. You know, normally, for someone as light-skinned and mixed as myself, we have to get inducted into the Hall of Fame before we get one of these black. Like, you're mixed up until you're Booger T. Washington. You're mixed up until you're W.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm mixed up until you're president of the United States and then after that you're just another proud black brother and sister so you're kind of like welcoming earlier earlier than the process normally takes I appreciate that hey hey you know why it's because I got those beige ass kids <laughs> I know the beige struggle I know the beige struggle um with my my, my children um I don't I doubt this ever happened to you um but <laughs> they don't they don't think the people don't think they're black regardless of hair yeah interesting yeah i don't they, know they also live they also live around a lot of filipinos and and uh so i basically what i've found so far is that if you're mixed with black and you are around black people who grew up around black people they'll peg you right away like i've been to New York, and obviously I live in LA, you see people hawking CDs and shit, mm -hmm. and every time one of these dudes sees me and I don't take their shit, which is also like, where the fuck am I going to put this CD? Like, how am I going to play this shit? Um, they always try to, like, guilt me into buying their shit. Like, I had one dude shake my hand, and he's like, come on, black men, like, we got the same nose, we're fans. Like, <laughs> I'm just like, I would... I would love for white people to sell shit that way, which is just like, come on, man. We got the same fucking nose bone. Together. <laughs> yeah. My girlfriend was blown away by it because they were like pointing out my nose and lips and shit. I'm like, you got to buy this shit. And this, this is a terrible sales pitch. But uh, Is it? 
You know, I I think it's less that they see that you're black and they think that you are on a higher tier mm. so they can guilt you into the black shit. Yeah. And that doesn't work on me. And <laughs> I'll ask for more shucking and jiving. Um, if you're trying to sell me a CD and you're not performing the CD in front of me, if I'm not seeing a reenactment of the 1982 film Fame in front of me while you're fucking trying to sell your CD, I ain't buying that shit. Uh, I love the CD hawkers. I've also gotten like, uh, what's it? Just random black homeless dude saying shit to me. Like my ex was white. So he, this one homeless black dude was just like, nice young brother got himself a snow bunny. I'm like that's just fucking, and this homeless nigga just making it awkward. Just weird. That was in Philly. So. <laughs> that's so weird. Yeah. You can yeah. take him to the black mall apparently. Uh, man, Philly was kind of ridiculous back when I was there. They also still allowed like the black Hebrews to just be there yelling whatever shit they wanted in front of the gallery mall. So it was ridiculous. I want, can you and your, so you guys don't know Bert. He always dresses down for this show. I don't know why, but I went to Denny's with Bert. Oh, and him and his chick came in like it was a red carpet event. And I was like, look at this. I feel so ugly and poor right now. And so he's just, I want you to, hey, when we go to L.A., can we all go to the Black Mall? Because y'all dress up. I want to see y'all at the Black Mall. That is going to be an event. Um, you know, we can go wherever you want. We can start off with Denny's and like, I, honestly, you oversell the shit. Like I was probably wearing a black t-shirt, but with yeah. like a leather jacket. It was no. dressed by like a snitch. Like a look. Nigga, you got on like four accessories. All right. <laughs> you and the fucking beanie and the smart glasses trying out for black NPR and shit. <laughs> See, this person gets it. I see Israelites in front of the Macy's. They love the Macy's. They know that <laughs> the old white people go to that shit, yeah. I see the Israelites in front of Macy's. <laughs> They're trying to find a fashion accessory so they can continue to look like Africa Bambana and the Soul Sonic Force. <laughs> Time test, <laughs> All right. All right, let's get to the look. Okay, I tried to buy american fiction and i couldn't i couldn't get it on apple i couldn't get it on amazon yeah. with that oscar nod they're gonna keep it they're, they're keep it in the theater oh the so i and i you know i wasn't going to the movies the movies can eat so many dicks right now i just, <laughs> I just don't i got that stub shit so i went with a friend <sighs> okay so you saw tell me you went to the movies first so explain, yeah. I, again, I didn't see the movie and I haven't finished the book. So tell me about the movie. What is it about? And Jeffrey Wright is a good actor when he's not trying yeah. to be a ghetto black guy. <laughs> so, you know, the movie in a vacuum, I just want to say right off, like right off the bat, like it's funny. It's like well acted. It's well done. Like it, in a vacuum, it's a cool flick. But the overall story is this. You have a professor named Monk played by, you know, Jeffrey Wright. And right at the beginning of the film, he basically has crosswords with a student who's, you know, I have the screenplay like downloaded, but the student is a white student who objects to one of his readings of Flannery O'Connor because it uses the word nigga. Well, you know, spelled with R and shit. Mm -hmm. It's like, I didn't do the reading, but I just object to that word. And he's like, 
No, last time I checked, it's spelled with two G's. I think it's online <laughs> um, stuff with like whip smart in it. It's really cool. But that gets him a talking to with three white professors. The three white professors basically like this isn't the first instance, you know, we think maybe you should take a leave when you go over to this conference. And the conference is back in Boston where his family is from. And the situation with his family is like, you know, his dad's a doctor. His grandfather, I want to say, was also a doctor, but perhaps not. But his brother and his sister are also doctors. And he's the only artist in the bunch. And, you know, he doesn't really like his family. He's not close to them. The dad died. So he takes this leave that they wanted him to basically go on because he was having problems with students. Plus, they say he hasn't published stuff in a while. And in the course of him talking to his agent, because the type of stuff he wants to publish has nothing to do with him being black at all. He's very abstract. And that's why his family doesn't get him. Exactly. Okay, so in the book, again, I haven't gotten so far in the book where he here's the sapphire thing but in the book his family is all professionals his dad was a doctor his brother's a doctor and his sister's a doctor but his brother is a plastic surgeon in la right uh arizona arizona and his sister works at at a clinic a planned parenthood clinic right yeah so in the movie well just to cut to the chase yeah no worries almost everything that's in the book erasure is changed in some way the film i mean there's very few things whatever you consider the most emotionally impactful moments of the film are either not in the book and vice versa or they've been reworked so that everything feels different so to give a quick example in the film you get to meet the sister she's who picks him up once he's Mm -hmm. you know back in uh washington Mm -hmm. and it's just kind of understood she's at a clinic. They don't go into it too much. She uh, is working with poor folks, which he thinks mm-hmm. is important in, you know, D.C. area. So we know by <laughs> poor black folks. Um, and she's funny. She makes jokes. She provides a little bit of humor um, about the relationship with the siblings. She says, you know, since Monk, Jeffrey Wright was dad's favorite, that drew her and the brother in this movie is called Cliff. But we can just use his book name, Bill, played by Sterling Brown. Um, drew them together because they were the two unfavorites. So let's just go right off the bat. That's not what happens in the book. No, in they the book, they fight all the time in the book. In the book, she actually hates her brother. She calls him a butcher. Even yeah. at one point, Jeffrey Wright, like his character, is imagining his sister in effigy. And even mm-hmm. the imagination of his sister doesn't like their brother. She considers him basically to not have morals, to be in the money, to be yeah. self-centered. Yeah. Um, all those things. She works at this abortion Planned Parenthood clinic that's constantly besieged by, you know, protesters. That's not in the film. Um, there's only one little joke that she makes, a little like corny uh, gynecologist joke that she makes that connects her to um, Planned Parenthood at all in the film. In the movie, she dies of a heart attack. In the book, she gets killed by an abortion protester. She gets a bullet goes through the building and kills her in the movie there's a which which was a thing that was a popular and i'm sorry to to keep interrupting you but you know you're an hour to fill um (laughs) it's one of the themes in when you meet her that she can't stand people that protest abortion clinics and if i'm not mistaken around the time this book is written there was a murder at an abortion clinic where someone took out some doctors yeah so so it's it's a righteous fear 
It is. And just to give people an idea, one of the things that really alters this is that the book is written in 2001, which is an entirely different era in black creativity. If you're familiar with my work, 2001, class is still alive and well in all black media. It's a part of everything. But this movie takes place in 2023 and it's written for the present, which is after class has basically been removed. So in the book, after she gets, there's a key thing here that they're doing with Lisa's character, which is that she represents the talented 10th female version for black women. She is a dutiful daughter. She is a doctor working in an underpaid, overworked, terrible part of the city providing um, care at plant at a Planned Parenthood type facility, but she doesn't like any of the patients. He um, says but, that in the book. Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't care for them. And after she dies, the other doctors who you presume are black in the book have discussion about like, what the fuck are we doing here? Inspiring people like these kids laugh at us. They don't even like us. So, mm -hmm. again, you have other presumably black professionals mulling over whether or not this is a waste of time because the black poor aren't really going to care that much and they laugh them behind the back and the two other doctors want to sell the practice basically so it's not a planned parenthood but it's a low-income clinic all that's in the book in the movie there's zero class at every stage of the book there is a class analysis splitting up these black folks mm -hmm. in the movie they remove it entirely at every juncture and so one of the biggest versions of that comes down to Issa Rae in the movie once Jeffrey Wright is back around his family and everything, mm -hmm. and he's feeling this pressure to get something published because he hasn't gotten shit published in forever. Nobody wants to re you know, read shit he's doing because he's reworking like Greek tragedies in the movie. He sees this person named uh, Centaur Golden, who's played by Issa Rae. Mm -hmm. Her name's different in the book. In the book, her name's Juanita Mae Jenkins. But in the film, and nobody comments on it, Issa Rae is playing herself. The character in the film is a graduate of Oberlin College who then goes to uh, become a New York Times or I'm sorry, a New York publisher. Mm -hmm. And she's on an Oprah like show. This mm -hmm. is you know, being played by Issa Rae. And the character is saying she read through manuscript after manuscript. And she was wondering, you know, where are our stories? You know, it's just another manuscript by like a white guy. And so I wanted to write this book. Mm -hmm. and. Issa Rae is talking exactly the way Issa Rae talks in any interview. But then to read a snippet of her book, you know, book club style, the book is called We Lives in the Ghetto. <laughs> and Issa Rae switches on to full on African-American vernacular English, if you want to be fancy, or just slang and abonics. And Jeffrey Wright's character is fucking appalled. He mm -hmm. cannot stand it. This book is being super popular. It's appearing everywhere. And everyone's using phrasing that has to do with stuff like, how do I put it? Uh, it's so raw and so honest and so gritty and yeah. all of these things. And so as the film progresses, Monk's mom ends up having Alzheimer's. His sister has died. She was the one footing a lot of the bills. Monk had had the privilege to just be, you know, a writer. Yeah. And his brother, it turns out he's gay um, and gets caught in Arizona with um, some, you know, Male on DL, yeah, on the DL boyfriend. Mm -hmm. The wife freaks out. He gets divorced. He loses most of the money. And he's just slightly self-centered in the film. Mm -hmm. um, so he can't help Monk. And so Monk's going 
feeling this pressure, he just loses his shit in one of these artistic moments. And he decides to write a book that parodies We Lives in the Ghetto called My Pathology. And he tells his agent to, you know, deliver the book to the white folks, you know, just as a joke. Like he's really trying, he doesn't think this is going to go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it does. It takes off. And then he ends up being on the equivalent of a national book award who, uh, what's the word? National book award committee. And Issa Rae's character is there on the other side of them. And it turns out that uh, his book is being considered for this award. Um, And so he's, oh, I missed the one point. He wrote my pathology under a pseudonym and comes up with a whole fake identity. It's supposed to be this black prisoner. It's making fun of everything that white people supposedly wanted to be. And all along the ways, they're just eating it up to the point that like he at one point says he wants to just change the name of the book to fuck. We're going to go for that. In the scene, this um, white female progressive who's a stereotype of that and a gay white, you know, cis male uh progressive who's also at the book publisher they both go for it he can name the book fuck it's getting option for a movie deal all of that stuff and throughout this he has to keep up this fake identity to not let people know that he's the one who wrote this book and eventually you know the book's being considered um for an award and he's sitting across from Issa Rae's character and they're the only two black people there on this committee and they both agree that fuck is not that good a book, but he can't kind of let that sit. And so he asks like Issa Rae, like, how exactly is fuck different from what you wrote? Mm-hmm. And she gets this whole opportunity to kind of defend. They have this meet where he's like, she's like basically saying it's black stories. And he's like, yeah, but it's not your story. And she's like, so, you know, there's nothing wrong with catering to market interest. Plus, some of these interviews or some of this was based off real interviews, you know, in the hood. And she has this moment to defend it. Mm-hmm. And basically after that, you know, he gets a movie optioned. And then because the film is based off an experimental novel, they have some fun with the endings. But sprinkled all throughout this, the film is basically attempting to explain this moment that we're in, why do black creatives make stuff that they do? Like I have the screenplay right here, a white director who comes up to him and wants to turn fuck into a book. Mm-hmm. This is what he says. This white director, he's trying to tell him like what sort of movies he likes to make. Uh, the director goes, I like to pair genre with real world pathos, which sort of elevates things. You might be interested in this new one we're about to shoot, actually. It's about this white couple. They get married on an old plantation in Louisiana and all the slave ghosts come back and they murder everyone. And Monk is like, dear God. And the director just goes, I know it's great, right? It's called Plantation Annihilation. Ryan Reynolds gets decapitated with an Afro pick in the opening scene. <laughs> so, I, I read a fun fact that um, a trivia fact that apparently the director's from Tucson, and he named all of the fake movies after bands in Tucson. <laughs> and I want to know if I know this cat because you know years of touring and there was the last few times we went out to Arizona we actually met the black people there yeah I am um, so uh 
it's so, funny it's funny that you say that he creates a fake novel and it gets re- well received there's a band who i am friends with the main guy behind the band called old man gloom and you definitely don't know who they are Bert. maybe cool. a handful of people watching the show knows who they are and my friend aaron turner i don't it's similar reasoning with with music where they felt that you know certain things were getting written about and elevated just because they made a fake record they took edits of their record and smushed songs together and they submitted it to like pitchfork and pitchfork wrote this glowing review of this album and they were like oh this is and then they came out they're like this isn't the real record this is bullshit that we threw together i should uh some of these uh comments from folks like yeah i'll I'll run through those because they are relevant to this point which is um so in the movie he does have a girlfriend her name's i forget i want to say she's marilyn in both the book and in the movie and she continues she's like his sister that's part of why he likes her Mm -hmm. in the film she is a she works with federal prosecution and she defends a lot of you know criminals and whatnot and that's her angle so she's still doing the talented 10th thing um but she her one of her bigger roles there is to one kind of help humanize monk but also to how do i put it she has a copy of Issa ray's book Mm -hmm. in it and she likes it and Mm -hmm. he like loses his shit over that (laughs) um so we could go through the movie piece by piece, but what this movie ultimately does, and then I'll jump back to the book, because I think that's like the really relevant point, is that this movie imagines if white people were 100% responsible for this moment we're in. So what I want to say is like, imagine white students quoting everything that you think of for Mm -hmm. Mm anti-racism, but there's no black authors or anyone black affiliated with anti-racism. There's only Robin DiAngelo and she doesn't have any black coworkers in, you know, wherever she is, they mm-hmm. invented it. The story that I just told you about what the white director pitches, the plantation annihilation, the only person in real life who writes movies like that is, you know, the most prominent is Jordan Peele, who's black. Yeah. Yeah. But they make it a white person who's doing that stuff. And throughout the film, they basically just imagine us being in this present moment Mm-hmm. Um, with no black, like there's no Ibram Max Kendi coming out in Time Magazine to say we're in the third black renaissance of art. That's <laughs> not a part of it. It's just there's black people who, to be commercially successful, mm-hmm. need to pander to this. And that's the reality. And they take away any sort of in-depth analysis about black Americans or really what's going on with this family. So let's just jump into the fucking book. Okay. The big, big, big difference, really, I want to go here. I don't know if anyone here has like seen the holdovers yet, but holdovers has Paul Giamatti playing this super fastidious, super neurotic character who is a classicist and he's not good with people and he's a fucking curmudgeon and he's not that good with women. He's a bit, you know, not that physically adept. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Wright has to play someone closer to that. In the book, though, Monk is accomplished in almost every area that matters for him. He's a 
first off, he's an author, but he also does woodwork. He's an outdoorsy guy. He is always in his head, but in the book, he's closer to an Oppenheimer character. He operates on a different plane than everyone, and they're constantly recognizing it. So in the literary community that doesn't expect to sell shit, he's at the top. He's doing conferences. He has fucking groupies there. Like they took out a bunch of what would be kind of awkward sex scenes to do now mm -hmm. uh, that he just has. Um, he is, he's got five, no his character has five novels already published, a ton of short stories, is a graduate of Harvard. So they set it up. So this is purely about being commercial. He's deciding whether or not to get one additional audience. And there is a gun to his head because his mom has Alzheimer's and because, you know, his sister dies. But in the movie, they don't capture the fact that that's not what's going on with Issa Rae. And also in the book, Issa Rae's character has no redemption arc. Zero. Mm -hmm. So they never meet in person to talk ever in the book. That's not a thing. Monk thinks her book is garbage. His agent, who would still like him to write something a little bit more black, thinks Issa Rae's character's work in the book, it's when Nita Mae Jenks, thinks it's garbage. He yeah. thinks it's trash. The girlfriend, Marilyn, mm -hmm. calls it light, fun, and that she just reads past the fucking dialect shit. Wow. And then there is Jenkins is not on the National Book Award anything. That's not going to happen. And the backstory to this is because Jenkins and Issa Rae's character is supposed to represent Push, the novel that Precious is based mm -hmm. on, which is written by a woman named Sapphire. And right out of the gate, she gets this stupid, not stupid like she should have got it, but stupidly large. Um, amount of money from a publisher, something like three hundred to five hundred thousand dollars um, for her book, and this upset Everett. You know the dialect in that book, and it upset a lot of uh, black academics at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so the book, right from the beginning, has nothing to do with this. It's Monk is only doing this for financial reasons. Jenkins is a fucking joke. Mm -hmm. And East Ray's character, I should say, is a joke. And at every point in that book, they address this class issue. Something you'll see in both the movie and the book mm -hmm. is that there's a woman named Lorraine. She's shaped exactly like a black mammy, like Aunt Jemima, or if you're old enough, or you just like old cartoons. She, back she's when a receptionist at the sister's clinic. Oh, uh, no. Yeah, Lorraine is a housekeeper. Okay, she's sorry. A housekeeper to Monk's family. Okay. Um, and within the first five pages of the book, Lorraine, who in the movie is the only one who represents anything close to working class, mm -hmm. within like the first five pages of the book, Monk is asking his sister, how's Lorraine, who has been their housekeeper since they were a child because they're an upper class family. Mm -hmm. um, and the sister is like, Lorraine's fine. What else is she going to do? She's still stealing little things around the house. Mm -hmm. So the black sister who does all this shit for the poor folks still thinks her black housekeeper is stealing. And if you're familiar with that whole history of accusing black housekeepers of that, the faceless black maid from Tom and Jerry. Yeah. Back when they were back when uh, Tom was still Jasper. Yeah, exactly. That body. Um, <laughs> yeah. So right from the beginning, 
there's a class issue. As the mom loses uh, more of her cognition due to Alzheimer's at different points, she bursts out with what her me memories were when it was old, where she accuses Lorraine of being basically uh, like a harlot or a tart, a hooligan, how she's always been stealing money. Um, Lorraine also tends to cook for them poorly in the one scene that she does. Again, doing these little things that we associate with like quietly resisting your bosses. Um, and nothing really good is ever said about Lorraine, honestly, nothing explicitly. At one point, Monk has to do all this climbing to go save his, uh, his mom who's locked herself in the bathroom. And he still takes the time to comment on how Lorraine didn't get up from her chair. She just watched him shimmy. Um, <laughs> Bill, who has this amazing redemption arc in the film because he's, you know, coming out, um, as gay and everything, he's funny, he's all this comedy and whatnot. It's not really in the book. The book decides to paint him in a nuanced light where you feel bad mm -hmm. that he had to be closeted, but everyone um, still addresses the fact that he's really selfish. Um, in the movie, there's this moment where the mom in like a daze thinks she's talking to Sterling Brown's character and really compliments him as being the real genius. It, it doesn't happen in the book. Um, in the book, they're pretty clear on the amount of homophobia that's just kind of <laughs> throughout the black community. Yeah. And it's crazy. I, I must have taken over 200 notes reading this book because, I mean, a third of the book is my pathology, a fictional novel that he writes. Mm -hmm. And in that book, we could go back, you know, the whole movie starts with making fun of white people for not wanting to say or not even wanting to read a book that uses the word nigga and fucking. But the makers of this film took out all of the class. They took out a third of the book because they really don't capture what he wrote in that book in the book or in the fictional book, My Pathology, you have an extremely homophobic black character who's supposed to be poor. And in the book, this poor guy has been written by a black guy who doesn't really know what it's like to be poor. He grows up like a Huxtable. So yeah. he writes this terrible caricature of a guy named Van Gogh Jenkins. <laughs> Van Gogh Jenkins, who has four baby mamas. Awesome. He hates his mom. He dreams sometimes of stabbing her. Gross. He rapes a light-skinned girl who father employs him like he gets hired by like a rich black family in LA and he rapes that girl and he also makes fun of her black boyfriend for being like an upper class black dude at one point he Van Gogh calls this black dude he's like calls him a nigga and you can see from the dude's face that he's never been called a nigga before in his whole fucking life mm -hmm. something that monk keeps returning to is that compared to the other folks he's at least aware that he has net that he's not from that class and so he writes this whole fictional book that's filled with shit that if core jefferson had put in the movie van gogh is you know he's misogynistic he rapes he's homophobic he refers to people one of his kids has down syndrome and he refers to him as a waterhead so you get the <laughs> ableist knock there jesus at, christ the very end of it Mm -hmm. where he's just shitting all over all of this class stuff and he's a terrible person himself his whole goal is to rob a korean store owner who he hates in the neighborhood mm -hmm. he kills that dude and ultimately he gets caught on tv when he's finally being arrested it's this whole insane scene um 
that involves like a Maury Povich type deal. Yeah. Um, when he finally sees that he's on TV, he's this news just like happy, like, I can't believe I'm on TV. <laughs> <laughs> and so the whole point of the book or that little mini book for Monk at that time is that people doing this are just selling out to be the nigga on TV by any means necessary. Oof. But even that book, the writer is very careful to let you know this is a made up version of being black poor written by a guy we're supposed to understand as being upper class. So he misspells every word coming out of Van Gogh Jenkins mouth, except for nigga. He will drop the wow. G in the word standing. So it will be standing. And then nigga spelled with an E and an R. This little subtle nod that mm -hmm. he, Monk isn't from that class. He doesn't know shit either. And in the book, they don't have Issa Rae's character having done interviews in the hood. Mm -hmm. That's not how she got her information. In the book, and even on the book jacket, mm -hmm. she spent three days in Harlem with her cousins and saw how they were living. And that's that's all she needed to know. That's all she needed to know. And if people go back to my early podcasts, that shit has been said to my face. Let's get back to that. Seriously, because you yelled at me, not at me, to <laughs> me yelled to me on the phone last week when we talked. Um, we do that to each other. We get excited about things that we're passionate about. And we yell at each other, not to each other. Um, and one of the things that we take great umbrage with is the way that black poor people are treated. Maybe one of the best pieces of writing about that in the last 10 or 15 years, you wrote the current affairs. Um, a very honest takedown that might feel uncomfortable for people to understand that when you see portrayals of us, it's generally not written from a first person perspective. At best, you get a cop, a reporter that, you know, with the wire kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, you get uh, the Issa rays of the world. Yeah you know, who are reporting from up high. Um, so it's always, in my opinion, a bit of a caricature. Precious was a hit. <laughs> Lee Daniels has a tendency to kind of make these films that are just like how weird and sad, like how much tragedy can he freaking put in a movie, dude? So that's, some of the best things to dive into. So like, here's, here's my work and here's kind of how that happens. I'm coming from poverty mm -hmm. and because class, it doesn't matter if you're in poverty, if you're middle-class or upper-class, there is a culture that comes with that. So to give one example, because I see some people commenting on uh, the rain in the film, there's a key moment where the brother who is, uh, is gay and he's brought a bunch of like gay lovers and stuff to the uh, beach house that the family has. And the people who are kind and embracing of him are Lorraine and the guy that she's going to marry, 
who are the closest thing to a stand-in for the working class and the poor. And they're in this film made to be really cool. You know, they're the cool people in grace embracing, literally hugging and being okay with, you know, the one black dude coming out and all that. I'd love for that to be true. But if you come from a black poor community, a working class community, you know that while that might happen as an exception, for this to be what you are telling white people, and it's what they always tell white people, they need, for a lot of our political system to work right now, we need to be able to say that everything that makes the white poor, lower white trash deplorable, sorry, white working class deplorable, mm -hmm. all of those bigotries and prejudices, they don't exist for the black poor and working class. And you got to leave that out. So a couple of things, you jump from Lorraine and Maynard mm -hmm. to the book. The other thing here is Lorraine and Maynard are having this big happy thing where, you know, she wants Monk to give her away, Mr. Monk to give her away, mm -hmm. boss to do that, um, and the weddings there, all that stuff. In the book, Monk's not the one who gives her away. And in the book, all of Maynard's family hates Lorraine and suspects that maybe she's a gold digger. Ooh. And the other part there is that there is no embrace of gay folks happening explicitly for her or Maynard. In fact, she's depicted as being your typical uh, lower income Christian woman. She actually stopped liking Monk after she read fuck in one of his books, not the made up fuck, but she saw in his highbrow literature, he cursed and she never treated him the same after that again. And just to take this away from my anecdote, Last year, Pew Policy or Pew Research Center took a survey of black folks and it separated those black folks by every possible group. So we're talking gender, we're talking income, we're talking region and education. And it asked them, how many things do you feel like you have in common with other subgroups of black people? So this is black to black affinity. And across the board, whether you were asking black women, poor black people, higher earning black people, the group that they had the least affinity with, the group that they chose the lowest ranking and said, I have few things or nothing in common with this group was black LGBT folk. Mm. So for the purpose, if you're going to have this movie, that's mm. all about how we have this burden of being represented to white people. And you're lamenting that at the same time you have people doing interviews about how important this film is and your only stand in for the black poor and working class is a bunch of like class unity nonsense that doesn't exist because maynard's family in the book can smell the wealth on monk mm -hmm. and immediately he's out of his element so that whole scene in the book is actually about class conflict and he, he ends up giving Lorraine a gift of money just to try and buy himself out of the guilt. He gets made fun of by like an electrician's apprentice. Wow. So, yeah. It's harsh, critical shit in the book about class. And they just take all of that out. And to go back to the other point, you're accepting the accolades for being representative to white folks, even as you're kind of poking fun at it. That's what makes this a quasi satire. You're poking fun at something white people are doing while still expecting them to think your movie is important in the same exact way. And you misrepresent not just my fucking memories, but Pew literally 
talking to them. How do you feel about gay folks? And it's just, it never stops. They take out all the class stuff. Um, maybe the biggest, and well, I mean, you're, uh, what's the word? I love the commenters here because this is one of the only times that I get a chance to go back to, I know colorism is terrible, but the jokes are fucking funny. So speaking of my beigeness, the biggest story, <laughs> biggest story of a poor person they cut out of the film mm -hmm. is about a biracial daughter. In the movie, they bring up Monk's dad mm -hmm. being a gynecologist who cheats mm. on and was cheating with white women. That's not what actually happens in the book. There's a stack of letters and it turns out that the dad, while he was in Korea, he fell in love with a Brit British nurse, deeply in love with her. And they exchanged letters. I mean, he cheats on his wife with her, but she's depicted as like his one true love. And they keep sending these love letters back and forth. But he just like the mom, just like the daughter, these are dutiful black excellence people. And he's going to stay with his wife. But eventually it turns out that they do get to meet. And when they meet the racism of the white woman's family, that's, you know, because before they were hooking up in Korea, now he's around her white family is terrible. And she can't stand putting him through that. And he doesn't want to be put through it either. And she thought things might've changed because the Korean soul or the American soldiers were also racist towards their union back in Korea. But after that one meeting, they are not going to meet again, but she got pregnant that time. And she decides that she doesn't want to ruin Monk's family. And so she keeps it a secret and she won't give him their new address. Mm. So Monk finds out that he's had a sister this whole time. And she's half white and half black. And eventually towards the end of the book, he gets to track her down because he finds the sister uh, where she lives. And he goes up to where she lives and who answers the door is a white neo-Nazi who is actually his sister's half sister's cousin. And so it turns out, you know, from this, clearly the family was as racist as was getting across in the letters. And he gets to he finally gets the information from the neo-Nazi to go see his sister. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these guys are between like 50 and 60 years old. Mm -hmm. The sister is living in a slum apartment, taking care of her granddaughter. And she just says, you know, pretty much flat out that she didn't get to go to college and that her life is getting to take care of her daughter until i'm sorry her granddaughter until her daughter gets off from work and then she goes off to work and so what you have in this book is this kind of class dynamic that you never see a lot of gen z folks are moving not all of them but a lot of them are moving towards the idea mm -hmm. that colorism is the complete rule so if you are my skin color that mm -hmm. is attached to all of these economic benefits yeah. But this book is from 20 fucking years ago, people raised by the one drop rule where they're really focused on the economic attachment. So in this case, we have a light skinned biracial woman whose life stays in poverty because she loses the fully black father. With the access to money. Yeah. And opportunity. And they cut the entire story from the book and change it to dad liked to fuck, fuck white chicks. That's why he was a gynecologist. Like another man we know on this show, Bertrand Cooper. <laughs> Many a great black man taken down. Many a great brother was taken down by the white flesh, Bert Cooper. Yeah. They make uh, it jiggle jiggle. <laughs> it's 
it's truly crazy and to you know to finish that and get back to your point about you know what happened in real life and lee daniels that's the other part that's missing from this and i liked percival Everett's book i would recommend everyone read it. i thought it was solid i'm enjoying it I, i'm enjoying it i'm glad you told me about it i'm glad we had this conversation this is why we're family <laughs> um what actually happened the real story of push and precious is very fucking important here this phrase that they're saying all the time mm -hmm. oh it's so raw and honest lee daniels a black director from a working class family like family matter style i want to say his dad was a police officer in west philly so very family matter style family he's the one who famously says that i mean other people said it was so raw and honest but he reads push and decides it's so raw and honest that he wants to make it into a film and what resonated with him is not his own memories but he tells the story of how a black girl from the neighborhood you know a poor girl comes running to the house and she's got some dysfunctional mom who she's screaming is going to beat her ass and do terrible stuff to her and lee daniels never forget forgot that story so years later when he's reading this book he's like so raw and honest you remember that happened so he gets the rights and then there's a screenplay writer another black guy who went to preparatory school in fucking the new england area before going to harvard he's the one who writes this for the screen they have seven producers um producers and ep producers so you know the proper people and four out of the seven are black one of them is lee daniels another is tyler perry and another is oprah and the person putting this book on oprah's book club is oprah so the book at the center of this that's supposed to be the example of what black people are forced to do to cater to white tastes is a largely black bougie operation and the film's got fucking nothing to say about it and that's without getting into the film being two stanford graduates two sons of lawyers Issa ray literally being the daughter of doctors and i'm want to say if you go through jeffrey wright's uh wikipedia he's an investor or a co-owner in an ethical gold sourcing company that's going to get you gold from africa but without the blood yeah. keep fucking with me <laughs> whoa um i want to ask you this question there's there is there is a uh, I think there's a lot of colorlessness when we think about how we like to look at marginalized people. Again, I, I had the opening uh, intro to the script where we talked about JT Leroy, where I know you didn't read those books. Um, maybe you probably don't even know about the story, but a woman named Laura Albert created a whole character named JT Leroy. Uh, the books were fiction, you know, much like uh, Sapphire's book was fiction as well, but it was raw and gritty. And she basically was taking from current gay authors and just adding more spectacle to the to the to the story. And all these big time Hollywood actors were like, this is the greatest book ever written. It's so true. It's so honest. So she started to have to do readings. And at the time, she was about like an overweight white woman. So she knew she couldn't show up. So she gets her sister in law, who was a very thin flat-chested younger woman and she goes we're just gonna put sunglasses on you and talk with this fake country accent and say you're jt Leroy." and it was really bad 
It was like, my name is JT Leroy. And it's like, whoa, got movie deals, did tons of speaking engagements. They met everybody who was anybody in the early 2000s, late 90s. But people in the gay community started to ask questions like, allegedly JT Leroy was over here turning tricks in the in the gay teenage side of town when none of us know him. You know, uh, this kind of fucked up. You're using our story to profit on, and we're not getting anything from this. You know, our situation isn't getting better. And then there was a lot of blackmail involved. But the the point is that you're using kind of this the poor white and then gay, and then you have movies like uh, Bastard out of out of South Carolina or North Carolina, Black Snake Moan. Um, we love seeing poor people. Why is that? Do we, or, or actually, here's a better question. I'll rephrase it. I'll rephrase it because you brought this to my attention a while back when you made a comment about Moonlight. And I want, I want you guys to know whenever you fucking talk to Burt Cooper, because he's dealt with Negroes like me his whole life, he <laughs> makes sure that he has all the facts. Am I lying? Nah, you're not lying. I'm used to too many barbershop squabbles where it's right? just like, you know, so facts right so you got to bring the facts so you brought up an interesting point about moonlight you're like yeah it won some awards but when it comes to like actually people going to see it in mass it didn't really break box office records negroes being fancy breaks but look wakanda the make-believe african nation there's only two places cats know about africa Zamunda and Wakanda, neither one of the places is real. So let's be honest here for a second. I will, I will, I will crowdfund. I'll do whatever the fuck we need to get some sort of this is revolution merch. That's just either tickets to like Wakanda and Zamunda, just like two tickets (laughs) to the most famous places in Africa. Or just literally an African map with a drawing of like, <laughs> like right in the middle, like fuck like, the I'll condo. I'll take that fucking map. Oh my god! It's... Like fuck the condo, condo. Um, but but like seriously, there's these yeah. movies that they do okay at the box office. They definitely get awards. Man on the Moon. There's so many of them that depict poor people living horrible lives. If you have a drug problem, even better, spun. We had all the drug movies that came out in the 90s. So also in the 90s, we have these these uh, hood movies that are yeah. all the rage because we also have a problem with, with drugs and incarceration. And then we had the 94 crime bill. And we have all these movies that kind of lead up to that. Uh, and, and that was all the rage until it wasn't. And then you kind of have Spike Lee, who is an interesting character that we haven't hit on. And I want to be quick because we have to go into the champagne room. But uh, we can go a little bit over because I think people are enjoying this conversation. Spike Lee, in my opinion, I was having a conversation with David Epps, friend of show, friend in real life, about Spike Lee. And I really feel after the work I did in researching him and black cinema, he is a person that when he first comes out, his goal is to squash black cinema in its current form, which was still black exploitation. He hated it. Because he wasn't represented. And if you look at his early work, it really is 
these tales of kind of bourgeois excellence. She's got to have it. School days. Mo Better Blues. And I'm not saying these are bad films per se. That's one of the most important things. Sorry to cut you off, but that's okay. the thing is a lot of times these criticisms are not of whether or not the films are good. Yeah. A lot I, American fiction in a vacuum. It's funny. Uh, a lot of the lines are funnier than what you read in the book. I was surprised that the book was considered a satire, but um, did you want to add more? You want me to jump on like, well, what, you know, I, I think, what, I think he's an important character because Spike Lee is a person that he makes uh, after he does school days, he does um, do the right thing. A movie I cannot stand. <laughs> and one yeah. of the things he gets panned for and do the right thing isn't the things that I pan him for and do the right thing. It's this depiction of kind of a harmonious hood. He gets a little bit of redemption, I think, in Crooklyn, but the tarnish on him was starting to wear off a little bit in the eyes of certain people. You're not telling our story. And this is the same thing at the same time that's happening to Bill Cosby, who also has a mission, in my opinion, to kill the Norman Lear style black sitcom that we got in the seventies. Yeah. You know, reading this and the critique and especially the conversation that I was having with you, I felt the need and this ties into other conversations we had and that I know that you've had on here, but we really need to appreciate the fragmentation of the audience, whether that's a readership audience or a film audience, it's completely fragmented. Anytime you look at the numbers, there's no one pulling the numbers necessary to be truly popular. This is about, can you get a distributor powerful enough to get in front of enough eyes that you're the one who gets the attention for that one little specific slice of pie? So there's always been black folks who resist this and have success you know how do i put it this writer right here percival everett you know he's written 20 novels he's writing an experimental fucking novel with 100 pages dedicated to a novel within a novel <laughs> and he's getting optioned for movies mm -hmm. so you clearly do not have to pander to get this one audience but this audience that you may want is the one that's going to circulate your information on all of social media. It might be the one that makes sure that you do get the cover of Vanity Fair and the New Yorker and all that stuff. So it's not even about whether or not you can get success or acclaim. There are tons of black novelists who have never pandered, never sold out, never done any trauma or poverty porn who have completely cushy tenure level jobs. You just don't know who the fuck they are. Mm -hmm. So the poverty thing, and I think this gets to the Spike Lee point is, you know, there's a certain, there are certain artists who have made the decision. You and I have talked about this before, probably on here, but they, let's expand it beyond black artists. There is a certain type of middle-class and upper-class American artist who is of the opinion that anything that occurs in the suburbs is fake plastic bullshit. It's devoid of anything worth making art about. And they're of the opinion that real art has to have these life and death consequences. It's got to be a type of horrifying trauma. Like that's why they're always using the word real, because in their head, they're coming from the place that is fake 
the trauma, the horror, the abuse that's real. And so if we expand the lens away from black folks for a second, kids trying to get these fucking awards, mm -hmm. the ones that don't just line your pocket, but get people to consider you part of the canon of must reads. Mm -hmm. If you're a woman, we're talking about abuse and rape and domestic abuse stories and losing a fucking baby. If you're gay, we're talking about the abusive drunk dad, the sad coming out story, the being abandoned. If you're trans, same thing, black, same thing, Hispanic. So everyone across these is in this agreement. And something they bring up in the book, which I think you're really gonna dig is that with this fragmentation, you know, the reality is that as more and more Americans join the same class, which in a lot of ways you and I want, we don't really, I don't want fucking poor people. I'd like people to escape, yeah. but their life is becoming more and more similar. So at one point when he's on the committee reading all these novels that might win national book awards, he's coming up with unofficial genres. He's like, I think I've counted 28 Midwestern, middle class, uh, where are the kids going to live family novels? Mm -hmm. When you have an audience this fragmented and you have so many people in each class leading the same exact fucking life, you're going to have to have a gimmick. And the easiest, most salacious fucking gimmick is trauma. The one for white people, that might be these divorce stories where not right after your parents got divorced, you went to performance arts high school. And while you were there, you were sexually abused by a teacher. White class, that's the only reason you're at a performance arts high school, but you need the abuse. That's what makes it better than what your white peers are writing. For black folks, the best access they have is to these stories that are supposed to be our stories. But all of this is for just a particular type of fucking clout that you don't even need to survive they're just they want that they want to be in the fucking canon they want to be there with spike lee being important to the history of black art so they're willing to sell this shit and what's interesting is and and i think people live in an all or nothing world and i don't know what a white movie is well i'm lying you know maybe the talented mr ripley i don't know Honestly, but but seriously, like you can reason, have Spike Lee. Go ahead. Say it. Go ahead. Yeah. Maybe this will make sense. Maybe it won't. Mm -hmm. The reason why it's hard for you and I to be sitting here talking about a white movie is because you and I are both. You know, <laughs> we're black American. We're from these areas where it's just like there's no it's it's not the culture we're inheriting is not a fucking caribbean culture it's not a straight from african culture it's black american culture and there's not a ton of shit where it's like oh when you go to a black person's house for a football game it's completely different than going to a white american's house for a football game and people don't appreciate this because we don't think of football as culture we don't think of the food served at a barbecue for a football game is culture, but to anyone else, anywhere in the fucking world, mm -hmm. all of that shit is culture. And mm -hmm. for black and white Americans, there's so much overlap that you end up in this position where it's like, what's a white movie? It's hard to say because it looks very similar to a black movie, unless you either focus on poverty or you sprinkle in micro, uh, microaggressions. The po I think the race thing works for a certain stratum of black people that use poverty porn to get ahead and to get noticed because you said this about something. I can't remember what you were talking about. You were like, man, if you weren't black, I just wouldn't care. 
Like no one would care. Was it hip hop? I think you're talking about hip hop. You're like a lot of these guys, if they weren't black, they wouldn't be. No one. Yeah. You and I were, I mean, I'll, I'll say this shit with my chest. I'm like, I sometimes play the game of looking at people and just being like, is this person still fucking famous if they don't have access to these stories? And the one we most recently told about, you and I both agreed. Donald Glover, for better or worse, I think regardless of his background, he stays famous. I think he sure. can make quality shit. And I, what I told you is like, if he's white, he's just on the same track as Bo Burnham. But there's a lot of other creators where it's like, if you didn't have access to these stories, you got fucking nothing. I mean, when you watch American fiction, eventually, um, one of the key scenes that stands out for me is that you have this black family. They are all have, you know, doctorates uh, or PhDs, either or they're wealthy. They're living at a beach house for the summer in Boston. So you get to this point where it's like, well, I got this white audience staring down the barrel at a black family. But how will they know they're black? How, what will show that they're black besides the mere fact of their fucking skin color? And the way they construct those scenes is you're at the beach house and you have a white guy come by and be a fucking Karen. And you have the gay black brother say some sassy shit to him, some drag race rule Paul attitude Jesus. energy to him. <laughs> and so what in that moment makes a black person black is the mere fact that visibly they're not white. Mm -hmm. And they're cool in the way that they can put Karens in their place because the very next fucking scene is drinking wine in front of a piano in a beach house. That's how thin the fucking black middle class and upper class identity is in a film like this. There, there isn't any magical black American fucking culture to point to. So it's just. Uh, it's almost like Republicans and Democrats. What makes Democrats different than Republicans? Well, if you're a Democrat and you're black and a woman, you can still get ahead. But it's the same fucking power structure. Like, it's just you You go to the same schools. Yep. You have the same fucking money. Yep. Most of you are the same race, but you're cool because you're with the underclass in theory. Black people in this film, beach house, wine, rich as shit. Ah, but they would never annoy their neighbors with some Karen shit. Isn't that fucking cool? <laughs> Which is funny because when you go to a movie like there's these movies that I think are black movies that we don't look at in the same light as black movies because they depict a normal house party. I was watching house party before I left for Mexico with my three-year-old. He was three at the time. He's five now. And for whatever reason, he watched that movie with me, Phoenix. You know Phoenix, Bert. I know. Watched that fucking movie with me. Didn't move from the couch as we watched it at his mom's house. And I was kind of like, why? I don't know why. But I think it's a colorful movie because it's the 90s. But it's also this movie that's filmed in an interesting working class area. And someone did this thing and it was badly done. And I don't remember if I sent it to you or not, because it's one of those things where the analysis was interesting, but the conclusions were really bad. And she said, Hey, we all know that movie. It was a white lady. She goes, you know, the movie boys in the hood. Let's see how much those houses are worth now that they lived in. Cause I find it strange that everybody was a homeowner. Like, first of all, you're implying that because it no, it's never said in that movie that everyone there owned there, <laughs> first of all. But 
as a person that's lived in mixed income areas of people of color in Richmond, California and Oakland, California. Um, I'm sure you lived in some kind of more like there's working class people like maybe yeah. your neighbor's a bus driver and they're a homeowner and you're renting, whatever. Right. Um, that that happens in these areas. It's not like everything is some sort of blight and it's not like everybody is involved in this criminal activity because there's babies crying and they oh. have to be fed. Nah. You know, some people just want shit that they don't want to pay for. But um it's it's interesting, and also I want to address what someone said, why I hate do the right thing. I hate do the right thing because it's the most fictional bullshit ever. I've been in New York a million times. I'll be real brief. I've been in New York a million times. I've never seen a white guy in bed walk around with a fucking Celtics jersey. Who the fuck has the thickest New York accent ever walking around with a Celtics jersey in New York? Go fuck yourself. Just because they're white, those are the dumbest shit ever, Spike Lee. There's only one thing that I like about Do the Right Thing, because everything you said, it's true. <laughs> it's true. But I like that it's a movie dedicated to making fun of a group that we don't make fun of anymore. Bug out. All the black <laughs> movies back in the day. I don't know if you came to Talib Kweli late or Mos Def or any of those shit, and like you think they used to be cool. They weren't. They weren't. Watch fucking... Uh, what's it? Don't be a menace. Yeah. Watch do the right thing. Like that dude for blackness, they are the blackness, like what the Jesus freak is to Christianity. Like you fucking avoid them. You can't stand them. And so I like that he added that part. But every other fucking part of that movie is just fucking ridiculous. I've never <laughs> seen a hood like that. Ever. But, but but back to what I was saying about a movie like like House Party. It's this movie that isn't about poor people necessarily. There's definitely a class element, right? Kid's yeah. character has a working class father in a single parent household that has to work nights and his girlfriend has a more well-to-do family. They seem to live in a similar area. They're going to the same school. Then you got these 30-year-old high school seniors in full force, which I find funny. But still, um, plays parents are going out of town on a vacation was it the Bahamas they were going to? I can't remember. Um, you know, you know, it's it's a very realistic take on a side of life that didn't need to be hyper ghettoized for you to understand what fun looked like, for you to understand what trouble looked like, even for you to understand what racism looked like when it comes to law enforcement, especially in Los Angeles in 1991. Right. Yeah. I, I hit all those notes so well in that movie. <laughs> oh, so we have a running thing here at TIR, Bert. Right now, the chat is trying to ask every guest, even the white ones, uh, are hoes loyal? So thank you, Dizzle McFizzle. Bert, what's Bertram's opinion on hoes? Loyal or not loyal? I mean, by definition, to hit it off some Riley shit, a hoe can't be loyal or they wouldn't be a hoe. Like, that's just, it's in the word. Where's where's Ben? We need to... Ben oh, already oh, answered oh, the question. Yeah. Ben already, they gave it to Ben, too. Ben, it's a ta-ta. Like, come on. You can't be a hoe and also be loyal or you're not a good hoe. 
<laughs> There's another thing people are doing in the chat right now for the people listening on audio. Go back and watch this on YouTube. You can actually pull up the live chat on YouTube. Um, they're trying to decide what is the white, because I said, what's a white movie? And everyone is throwing in <laughs> what they think the whitest movie is. And some of the shit that's you got mail is the whitest movie. <laughs> uh, City Slickers, yes. whitest movie ever. Yeah, possibly. American Pie is a white movie, says Steve. Someone white. said the Parent Trap is good. Um, I'm trying to think of a movie, movie that like I know has. This is a bad way to define, but I'm like I'm trying to think of a movie that like. I don't know any black people have watched it or recommended it to me. Like right now, I think maybe Hot Rod is one of those. Like, mm. like I think it's funny, but I keep track. I've of never it. seen it. I've never. I'm not against it. I've just never seen it. Not against it. Yeah. So this is a good question. It's a good question. The also, Notebook. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. But I know black people love The Notebook. I would. On Golden Pond, Kush, look, you might be the fucking winner with that one. On Golden Pond. Exactly. That's how wide it is. Even your white side's like fucking. (laughs) There's too much black on your white side. That's making you malfunction. You know, there's there is funny shit that happens to me where, like, I think back and when I saw a movie and I realized only white people have ever put this shit on for me. Like, (laughs) I've never been at a black house and they're like, let's put on Dirty Dancing. I'm assuming some black people like Dirty Dancing, but I, they never played it. Someone said Fried Green Tomatoes. I've seen Fried Green Tomatoes. I went to the theater to see that. <laughs> Amazing. I, well, I told you my story about Olympia Dukakis. How she encouraged me to quit my job at uh, Starbucks and follow my dream. Oh, that was a mistake. <laughs> You'd be leading the union right now. You'd be like, <laughs> yeah, I can be like the fucking Jimmy Buffett, like you or Jimmy Hoffa. You would be Jimmy like Jimmy Buffett. No, I like being the Jimmy Buffett. No, nope, you're Jimmy Hoffa. Like, but the way Al Pacino played him in uh, the fucking Irishman, just is all it? the swag, but for Starbucks. Someone says Roadhouse is a white, and Roadhouse is yo. I fucking love Roadhouse. Everybody I'm loves Road. This remake of Roadhouse is pretty fucking lame. That's yeah, really annoying. Too much unnecessary shit. Yeah. But you can Sam have. Elliott? Go ahead. Sam Elliott, greatest hair of all oh. time. Period. Sam Elliott, fucking, come on, man. Someone says Gosh. Office Space. Really? I thought Office Space is great. Everybody relates to Office Space. Does everybody relate to? I love Office Space. I, I love mean, Office Space. It's one of the great '99 movies, you know. If you don't relate to Office Space, you've never worked in an office then, and that's fine. Maybe you haven't. Lady Bird works. Lady Bird. Although with the harsh parenting, I feel like some black people are going to be like, my mom was a lot like this mental health nurse. <laughs> Sean Moon said, damn, no one sees ordinary people. That's a pretty white movie. That is a pretty white movie. Um, House. The movie House. I don't know any black people that have seen that movie. And that's a horror movie. And Negroes love horror movies. But here's something I said to your friend, Brianna Joy Gray. Don't, she bring, doesn't me, watch don't this show. bring me into your, your um, shit. She was yelling at me about black skin erasure in cinema. And I was like, what are you talking about? And I was like, black people have all kinds of black movies. 
What do you yeah. mean black skin erasure? What does that mean? Oh, like only light skinned people are in movies. I was like, that's not true. I was like, aren't all these dark skinned women winning Oscars? Wakanda. Yeah. Davis's all these slave movies. No, it's not. It wasn't enough for her, right? And I, I'm, I'll take more any day of the week. I'm just saying, like, <laughs> we've got to agree that we've well, some minimal point. threshold here. The, the, this was my point. I was like, anything you want in a black a movie, Negroes are making it. Tyler Perry has a massive studio, and a grant. He's not the only one. And people are making them all over the country, and they're not all uh, very low budget. They're relatively decent budgets. She, I think, is like, well, where's my romantic comedy with a $50 million budget that Jennifer Aniston gets? And where is it with a dark-skinned black woman? I was like, I'm sure it's out there. I don't know. I don't watch romantic comedy, so I can't fucking answer that for you. But I I do know this. If you want to see black people in movies that are actually entertaining, there's tons of them. You want to see mysteries? Got them. Horror movies? Got them. What do you want? I don't know that I've ever really liked rom-coms enough to give a shit whether or not they put yeah. black people in it, period. Like, I fucking, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know what to say to some of this shit because it's like, that's just like the visual. If you're talking about like poor or uh, dark black people like getting work, it's just, there's so much. And if you want to say that there should be more, like go for it. But to say like, where is it? Where is it? I wish somebody <laughs> like Mahershala was around. I wish Viola Davis had a career. I fucking wish Lupita Nyong'o was in a blockbuster. I wish wish somebody would bring Angela Bassett back. Like, what what the fuck are we talking about? I just saw Angela Bassett on a fucking red carpet the other day. Yeah, it's it's. She must be invisible to you, certain people. You know what it is? It's like, oh, you want it for certain people in your crew. And it's not deemed good enough. Got it. Got it. Yeah, it's also hard. This gets really complicated, but to the degree that I think people do take messaging on how to imbibe stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to have that. How do I put it? I feel as if there is a tension between wanting the sort of budget and not everyone is doing this. There are a ton, let me backtrack just like, there's a ton of black producers and actors and people who've really banged this drum of like, you can put black people in any movie and the numbers show that people will go to see it. And I support that vision, but there's this other group of black folks who also maintain this idea that everything with black people in it is beyond understanding, unless you're black. You couldn't get it. What would would you understand? So it's very hard to both say, I want the budget of a movie that everybody goes to see, but also everybody who's going to come and see this. I want you to understand that you are fundamentally incapable of understanding my interior experience. And somebody brought this up somewhere down here that Mm -hmm. Crazy Rich Asians was the whitest movie. Mm -hmm. That's actually like a really fucking smart observation. A lot of ways where like I love beef and uh, I thought that was great show yeah i've loved several of the things that have come everything everywhere all at once yeah. but something i've noticed you look at beef a lot of the themes and archetypes in that these are things that white people identify with that movie was or that show beef was allowed to do upper class 
artist lady versus working class dummy in a broke down fucking truck. It had you sympathizing with crypto bros, uh, just <laughs> your trashy fucking cousins. Like yeah. these are all things that the white audience for beef that loves it can relate to. But mixed in with that is the fucking very uniquely Asian ethnicity stuff. They even worked in some of the fighting between Koreans and Japanese people. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing for a lot of groups out from Middle Easterners with this is that they are, they're not saying it. They're not like we're embracing the things we have in common with the white folk, but they are openly allowing white people to identify with the parts that they can and then throwing in this other stuff. Sometimes they're throwing it in. But do you think when you go out of your way to make a, like, I feel like these movies hit you over the head so hard with their blackness. Again, I wasn't a huge kid and play fan. I don't know anyone that was bumping. I don't know anyone that was bumping that shit. Right. But when we went to go see house party, it was just a movie to go see that seemed cool about young shit. And we had a ball and a lot of people of my era watched that movie yeah and then you go to a movie like friday yeah and i'm really gonna probably get shit for this and that's fine i took maybe from me let me hear um i took my girlfriend at the time who is korean and her sister we went to go see friday with a gentleman that comes on this show quite a bit coach will who is also Asian. Um, Will, if you guys know Coach Will, he coaches at Oakland High. <laughs> uh, basketball coach at Oakland High. Um, I think you people would call him down. Um, so we go to watch Friday. <laughs> so we go to watch Friday, and I remember she kept looking at me like, I don't get it. Why didn't they leave the porch? Like, why? <laughs> and, and and I and there's these movies that's like when you make some of these movies. Are you making them for this small audience? You ask Ice Cube at this point in his life who the Friday series is for. I'm pretty sure he can nail down the demographic. He made three. He made money on them. He doesn't really give a shit if white people watch Fridays. He makes them for a pretty low budget. He figured out how to get really good up-and-coming talent. Mike Epps, Chris Tucker, Williams. He must have been really in with Def Jam or some shit. Comedy clubs out of L.A. Um, He nailed it. With the, the Terry Crews is in the is in the Friday movies before he really blows up. Um, it's it's marketing at that point. I like his approach, mm-hmm. and I'm completely happy with like yeah, don't beat anyone's head you know over the head with it. Like again, you know, referencing beef. I've talked about beef, and I've heard people who just flat out didn't understand something in beef that was cultural. And that's fine. They even make fun of it for that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the way to, to go about it. If he had had a monologue squeezed in there about like, you know, the reason we sit on the porch is 
Slavery. And now we're sitting I tell you. I just can't take this porch anymore. Niggas down. couldn't sit on the porch in 1847. That would have been terrible. But, um, you know, not to say that I'm right with this point, but that's something that comes up to me. You know, somebody mentioned their stoner friends love Friday. Mm-hmm. And I just I agree with that. But there's some there's a part of the life force here of like what allows a film to permeate that I just think has certain shackles, not to make a fucking horrible pun when it comes to black film. <laughs> like you're what do most people do with movies they fucking like they try to recreate them in their own art they quote them all the fucking time like american pie like so many people were saying and another thing at band camp uh but if you're these white stoner guys it's like where are you supposed like can you quote friday can you enjoy it in the same fucking way to go to a completely different art form you know i i was a fan of fucking chef's table i was watching that a lot and at the same time i was in philly while it was trying to like improve its food scene and you would see people writing these things all about how you know why isn't black owned like fried chicken places why isn't that taking off why isn't that a part of the foodie scene and something that at least to me never occurred to these critics was that for all the other food things like you can be not french and be an authentic wine snob you don't Mm -hmm. have to be japanese to be apparently the person with the best opinion on fucking yakitori in the city or like where to get sushi and shit like that Mm -hmm. foodies operate in part by being allowed to be aficionados Mm -hmm. and black cuisine like you can be a white person who knows where the best korean fried chicken spot is someone korean might say that you're wrong but it's not really a faux pas in the same way. Now, if you were a white person arguing with black people about where the best black fried chicken is in fucking Atlanta. (laughs) So we have these little things that say, you're not allowed to love this and to be snobbish about it and be an aficionado of it in the way that you can do for other races art. And Mm. I think that plays a fucking role. Is that a good thing or bad thing? Oh, good question. Um, there's a clip we have of that Van Latham guy saying that black culture needs to be gatekept, quote unquote, black culture needs to be gatekept. We've I, someone I know whose name rhymes with Urchin Foofer once <laughs> said, um, it's like these people want black culture to be treated like the fucking Romans. It's ours. <laughs> Don't touch it. Look at how great it is. Oh, yeah, the museum thing, yeah. You know that guy. Yeah. I've, I've met this, uh, yeah, <laughs> kind of too close to a paper bag, you know? <laughs> I don't trust where he's coming from. I mean, this gets into shit that I, I'll be honest, you know, I haven't spent, there's all these Afrofuturist, you know, people, writers out there who have a very clear idea of where they want, you know, black folks to end up a hundred years from now. Sometimes you and I joke about this as dashikis and lasers. That's, <laughs> that's the end goal. White people get Star Wars, we get dashikis. Dashikis and lasers. Um, but Which is just George Clinton. I mean, in an ideal situation, yeah, I would prefer for there to be some blueprint to appreciate black culture, but also participate in it. For there to be some way, you know, 
I fucking I I'm cosmopolitan as fuck. I like other people's cultures. I'm hoping that there's ways for me to fully participate in the culture without stealing the shit from them in some way. Um, if that's not possible, that kind of fucking sucks. The Caesar salad was created in Tijuana, Mexico by an Italian immigrant. <laughs> oh, someone asking the question about what museum I've said to Jason before. I am the mystery character here. I've said to Jason before <laughs> that there's some people who seem to have a view of black culture that it should operate the way Roman culture does in a museum. There should be this gigantic edifice dedicated to it. It should be glorified, studied. You should go in and look at it and admire it and understand it as important, but don't fucking touch anything. Please don't touch stand the there and appreciate it. Yeah, please don't touch the blackness, which goes back to that original. Like, there's not the right kind of black people in the movies that I want to see for the right kind of black movies that I want to see. It's like, oh, you just don't want to see. You want to see fucking bougie middle class black movies that are arty and people look at as important. But if there's a black movie that may not get looked at as important, then that's not good enough. Who, Andy William, comment of the night: Who invented brunch? Because I love it. People who don't fucking work. Shout like, out. Brunch is not an option for people with a job. That's what? There's a lot of shit. We're going to get into a little bit of that in the champagne room. I have some videos that are mildly serious. Does someone say Love Jones? That's another. Look, there are movies that I love. One of the first episodes of this show I did four years ago, five years ago with comedian Chris Riggins. He wanted to do a whole show on why Boomerang is the greatest movie of all time, and you can't argue with him about it. And I thought the whole concept was funny. Um, but I love Boomerang. Again, I watched it as a young person. I, you, could, you couldn't tell me and my friends, my you know multiracial Fat Albert gang of friends, that Boomerang was a black movie. It was, first of all, an Eddie Murphy movie. Trans- then it was a funny movie. Yeah. And it was a cool movie. One of my be- one of my good friends, he's an older Mexican cat. Good friend. That's his favorite movie. And the first thing he says in that movie he goes, oh, I love Eddie Murphy's suits in that movie. He was so <laughs> clean. <laughs> Great movie. I don't know to me, but do you call it a black movie? They tried to make it a black show on BET and it just got so blackified. Nah, man. Honestly, I would. I'm not the person who wants Soldier to call Story. that. It's a good movie. Soldier Story is a great movie. We did on movie night. I don't. Yeah. I, I'm not even. There's movies that, like, in a really technical way, I might call it a black movie from the sense of, like, if you didn't grow up in the hood or in that particular yeah. area, like, you're you're just not going to understand that. But going to an even, you know, a greater level of depth, there's movies that would, you know, might be filmed like. Gulf, Gulf Coast, like black films from there that me being like a Northeastern dude, like I'm not going to get it. I won't understand that particular expression. So it's it's just fucking hard for me to classify things like, oh, this is the black movie. Here is look, here is a here's a white man from the central coast of California, Matt Hendrickson. I saw and love Boomerang in the theater and it never occurred to me as a black movie. But also saw and love Mo Money, <laughs> which is pretty bad. 
watch go back and watch boomerang the only white wow. people in that movie there's like an italian man that tells martin lawrence that he can't put a jacket on layaway and they make fun of the white waitress that's very enthusiastic about the salad though so, oh and then there's the white french people that are on the board of directors for lady eloise's product as you can see i've seen this movie way too many times that was one of the critiques of that movie another movie that has an all-black cast <laughs> uh that came out before that one coming okay. to america i gotta do uh a complete fucking aside because somebody mm -hmm. mentions the rothko-esque background that i have and i have to say that like mark rothko is one of the only fucking artists names i know like i I have some straight up illiterate hood shit where it's like, I remember where I learned who the fuck that was. It meant something <laughs> to me. And then coincidentally in the novel, what you're about to get, Jason, at some point, it's a truly experimental novel. So it has these little inserts. And there's one point where he's got Mark Rothko talking to another artist about just like, hey, if they buy it, fucking sell that shit. Um, so Rothko is, is an Easter egg here. Mm. Um, someone says Snatch made us look like clowns. Which one was Snatch? Movie was Snatch. Made white people. Look, I love Snatch. Maybe, maybe. Yeah, isn't it the white movie? Isn't that Guy Ritchie? <laughs> yeah, it's Guy Ritchie. But also, I love it mostly for Brad Pitt, and he's just straight up British trash. So maybe yeah. that's my affinity for it. I, I maybe there's a dip. Maybe he meant. Uh, wasn't there another movie with one word where black people are doing black shit where they crash? Uh, maybe he snatched his crash. Did you snatch your crash? Did you crash in the Did snatch? Did you crash snatch? <laughs> we are going to go into the champagne room. Burt Cooper uh, agreed to go in there because he did click on yes on the calendar invite for the champagne room. He has the link. And the white half of me treats that shit like a blood oath. You can't lie on Google Calendar. You can't lie on Google Calendar. Not on the G Suite. No. When I saw that Bert was like, I have to. I, so part of my day why I couldn't get really deep into the book today is because I had to find great fucking videos. And again, I'll talk about Bert and I's relationship. We send each other fucked up videos back and forth all day. There's a few of us that do it, but Bert and I are the most consistent. This Sorry. poor man is trying to write a novel. Wait, wait, wait. I have to I have to do this just because complete due diligence yes brad pitt is a traveler or roma in there you know all honored at tyson fury i he is that i just said brit really quickly but he's a traveler just in case you run into one of the furies at the gym you know you know the funny thing is that fury doesn't like the uh, pc term for his group he doesn't call them that what's he calling gypsies oh okay yeah i'm not trying to call him anything wrong because i'm not trying to get caught with winning them rights <laughs> I'm not trying to get caught. That dude was like six eight. How tall is he? Six seven, six eight, and without gigantism, so just naturally that. Fuck that noise. Good uh, day, yeah. Mr. Fury. How are you? Yeah, I mean, plus he's got fucking. I want to see. I want to say his reach is proportional to his height, if not a little yeah. bit longer. Fuck that noise. I'm only talking to him with a firearm. <laughs> I can't believe you just made a death threat. <laughs> but Bert and I send videos back and forth, and it was it was killing me not to send you these videos that I need you 
to talk about in the champagne room. So thank you guys so much for watching. Again, if you're new to the show, this is your first time watching. Thank you. Welcome to what we do here on TIR. Um, please, if you enjoyed it, leave a like, subscribe. We do a lot of these. You can go back into the catalog. We have over 750, I think we're closer to 800 episodes in the almost five years we've been around. Bert Cooper has been on several of them. We definitely take some fun, deep dives into culture stuff and definitely black culture stuff, as we're colored. Um, if you really enjoy what we do and you want to make sure we stay on the air and you have the means and feel so inclined, become a patron for as little as $3 a month or $30 for the year. You can have access to all the patron-only champagne rooms. Join us for movie night and other patron-only functions. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, apparently there's a transcript function. You can read the show if you're really one of those. And... You can also get access to the Champagne Room if you subscribe on Apple Podcasts. I think I've got it all out of the way. For those that are patrons, the link is already up for the Champagne Room. Bert, exit out of here, and I'll see you in there. We are out.